Matthew 1.18.25 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared and said unto him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will be called, his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her in a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let me be seated. Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, and we celebrate him this morning. Amen. I just want to briefly, if you'll be seated, just briefly give you a picture of the first advent. That's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating today, this Christmas. And we think of Christ and the coming of our Lord and Savior. And we look at Isaiah, we look at this prophecy, and we look at the men of faith who pursued this for years and years so that they could see Christ, so that they could behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so that they could see God with us, Emmanuel. And in their anticipation, we see this, we see this prophecy. And if you don't know the book of Isaiah in chapter 7 through 11, they kind of talk about it being, scholars would mention it and say that it's really the book of Emmanuel, these, these four chapters. And so I just want to walk briefly through it. In chapter 7, we see the announcement. We see the virgin birth, the one born, the one known to be Emmanuel, God with us. In another word, it's the birth, it's the evidence that God himself came to us, that the very presence of God came to us. In the Old Testament, we've seen that the presence of God came in many different forms. But in the New Testament, the incarnation, Jesus was fully God with us. And so the signs of the Davidic family would continue and that we would have a future, a future that would be shared with Christ in faith. And then in chapter 8, Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied that the people would know Emmanuel, that he would be the king. And because of his kingship, that there would be either a stumbling block for those or that he would be their foundation. He would cause those to fall because they didn't trust and believe or he would be the foundation to which everything we believe would be held to, and that would be Christ. And then in chapter 9, Isaiah identifies this wonderful king, Emmanuel. He describes his authority as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, and that he would reign forever in righteousness and peace. And Isaiah says, this child will be born, his son will be given to us, and the fulfillment would be in Christ, Christ alone. And though many people look outside of Christ, it's unfortunate. But I love what the angel said in the garden. He says this, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
God is with us. And God is with us, church. And so according to Matthew, I mean Isaiah chapter 7, it says there will be a king and he will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about universal change for all of creation. For all of creation. And so this announcement of the birth was more than just a mortal birth. It was a supernatural birth. It was the Messiah. He was coming to fulfill and to be our king. So it's much more. And the New Testament writers, they knew this. They knew this. And one day, they would hope to see it. And so many of us, as we look to Christ, as we reflect on what Christ has come in the first coming, I pray that we continue to look to Christ in the midst of the second coming. That as we anticipated the birth of Jesus, that we anticipate his return because he is our king, he is our life. And so this morning as we continue to worship, I pray that our hearts are turned to focus on Christ, not only in this season, but throughout all of eternity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we gather here today to celebrate the fulfillment of the promise that God gave us. And that through your son, that he would manifest love and life to his people so that we could proclaim it to the world. Father, thank you for your birth. Thank you for this wonderful king that we worship and celebrate this morning. For he is the one that saves. He is our true king. And we're excited to celebrate, to, to look at Christ as our king, as our savior, as the one who came to save us from the sins of the world. And so this morning, I want to kind of recap where we've been in the Advent series. I know that we've taken a unique look on it. We've looked more at what does it look like in our anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And so in the first coming, we've reflected back and we've celebrated and we talked about the birth and we looked at hope, peace, love, and joy. And we looked at it in the manner of our evangelism. And so I just want to remind you that our theme, that it's a, that the idea throughout this series is that we have a deeper understanding of Advent so that will lead us to a deeper desire for evangelism by proclaiming the glorious return of our King. By proclaiming that. How do we proclaim that? With our words and with our actions. And so the answer to that is that we proclaim it through our words and actions that Christ is our hope. That He is our love, our peace, that he is our joy. And that looks much different than the way the world views those words. And so this morning, as we think back, way back four weeks ago, as we looked at Christ as our hope, Hebrews 6 says this, Hebrews 6, 18 through 20 says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of our souls, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That this hope is true. In verse 19 it says, this hope we have as an anchor. What hope? Christ, that his love for us is dredged so deep 
that nothing, it says that God is unchangeable, he's unable to lie, that when he promised to us a Savior, Jesus, his name means the one who will save, that that promise was dredged so deep that no one can change that, that no one can take that away from us. And so it says you have an anchor for your soul, both sure and steadfast. This is truth, church. This is a truth that we hold on to and know for a fact. Christ is our hope. It's not some wishful thinking, but that we know it is so true. And then we looked at Christ as our peace, and we looked at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let the gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. In verse 7 it says, and the peace of God, this is meaning that we are being made complete, that we are whole in Christ, church. He is our peace. That when we stand before God, that we are made whole in Jesus Christ. We are no longer at war with God, but that we stand clothed in righteousness. And we have a peace knowing that. And because of that, when we look at the circumstances of life, we know that it will be okay. It will be okay. Because God has made us complete through Christ. And no matter when the circumstances that are unfathomable, unthinkable occur, we can have peace in God. And the world will see that. The world will see Christ as our peace. And then we looked at Christ as our love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him in this love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Church, if we love one another as God has loved us, let's not take this out of context. This is talking about us unifying as believers to love one another so that they will see the picture of Christ in his church and those on the outside will look in and want what we have. And that is love for one another. This is love. Perfect love was originated in God. It was manifested in his son and it is demonstrated in his people, the church. This is perfect love. And I pray that we lean on the gifting and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that and not our own. That we love one another so the world will see Christ as our love. And then we looked at Christ, our joy. John chapter 15, verse 9 through 11, it says, Just as the Father has loved me, 
I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abided in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Joy is emptying ourselves of this worldly things that only bring momentary happiness. But when we abide in Christ, when we abide in him, he will fill you with an eternal joy that will last forever. He will fill you with that. So quit filling ourselves with emptiness, with things that don't sustain in this life, in this world. Because when the world looks at you and I as believers, when they look at the church, they don't want to see empty, false happiness. They want to see a happiness and a joy that is full of Christ, no matter what. No matter what we have, or no matter what we don't have, our joy is founded in that eternal promise that God is good and that he loves us and that he wants what's best for his children. Do you hear what he said there? Abide in me as I abide in the Father because I want to abide in you and I want you to be filled with me. And so I want to challenge you. I want you to remember that we are called that we are all believers here, that we are called and gifted with the indwelling love of God. And because of that, we have the ability, we have the ability to share Christ with others. You, each and every one of you. No one is more special. No one has a better story. God has given you all that you need to show and put on display to this world Christ's hope, peace, love, and joy. And so I challenge you that you pursue that. And so now I want to, I want to turn our attention to Philippians chapter 3. If you'll turn there, we're going to sit in chapter 3 for a little while. And we're going to start in verse 7 and kind of read through, but really focus in on 17 through 21. And so as you're turning there, I want us to look at Christ this Advent season as our goal, which in turn will compel us to run this race of life in a way that will cause others to see Christ as our prize. So if you would read with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Paul says this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which, for, which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself of having laid hold of it yet, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. And so verse 14 here is the transition verse. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it clearly. And I want it to challenge you to live in such a way that magnifies Christ here on earth as our goal and our prize. He says this, I press on towards the goal. The goal. The goal is that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ here on earth. That is our goal, church. We want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ here on earth. And then he goes on to say, let us press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Our prize is that one day we will be like Christ. Amen? God will transform this mortal body and we will be like Christ. That is our prize. The goal is that now we live for Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then that one day our prize, we will receive Christ. And He is our prize. He is our treasure. And so with this in mind, let us press on in chapter 17, I mean chapter 3, verse 17. It says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set the mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior." the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this body of our humblest state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And so there's three things in this progression. I really want you to hear. There's three things. My example, this is what Paul says. says, look at my example. He wants you to flee from the enemies, and he wants you to focus on the prize. So these three things we're going to walk through, we're going to move through. And starting in verse 17, it says, Brother, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now let's look at this just for a moment. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand Paul is not putting himself on a pedestal. He's not trying to raise himself up and say that I'm perfect. Look at me. This is not Paul's goal in this message. What Paul is saying, he's saying, I'm being perfected by the power of the Holy Spirit so that follow me in the way that I'm moving towards perfection. You hear that? Paul's saying, look at the way that I'm moving towards perfection by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that I am, perfe uh, that I am perfect, but I'm moving in that direction. Follow my examples, brothers. He wants you to understand that in verse 12 through 16, that he has not obtained it yet. That he is not already perfect. That he has not arrived. And if you read the test, New Testament, I think that we would understand that. I think we see where God even put a thorn in his, in his side, right? To remind him of how prideful Paul could become. And not only that, look at 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 15, it says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Not I was, but that I am. Paul is not perfect, church. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. I don't want you to misunderstand, because Paul didn't misunderstand in 1 John, when he says, if you say you have not sinned, you call God a liar. Paul is not doing that here. Paul is a sinner just like you and me. And he has not reached perfection yet. But he presses on and he says, I am a sinner. And because I am a sinner, God has indwelled in me the power of the Holy Spirit so that I can move towards perfection. So that we can move towards perfection, church. And I want to challenge you, young men, young women, find someone that can be your example. Find a Paul in your life that can mentor you. This is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. We need help. We're not perfect. But when we can look to someone who is living a godly life, not putting perfect expectations on them, but walking with them, do that. Men, women, both, find someone. Find a Paul in your life that can challenge you and say, be the example. Pursue like I'm pursuing perfection. And then second, Paul talks about this. He says, flee from the enemies. Look at verse 18. It says, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now let me just say here that this implication, what Paul is saying here is that He's not stating the enemies here. He's not saying like as if they walked in here, threw the doors open and said, we hate Christ. We reject the cross. We reject everything to do with Christ. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not the implication here because that would be easy for us to discern, right, church? We'd be like, "Eh, let's usher him on out, Uh, you know, pray for him, but usher him on out. So they're not enemies in that sense that they're coming to take over or to distort our view in a outwardly expression. But what they're doing is they're coming at us people who what? Who are friends of Christ. Who understand the cross. Who even advocate Christ to some degree. Who identify with Christ. Who are on the church roll. Right? Who come to Sunday school. Who come to the events. Who even want some spiritual leadership in their life. But they are enemies of the cross. They are very refined in their thinking. And so it takes discernment to recognize these people. And so with this in mind, look back at verse 18, and let's look at it more practically. It says this, it says, For many walk, for many walk, being this idea of this daily conduct, this, this idea, this manner of life, that many walk of whom I often told you. And Paul goes on to say, now telling you even weeping we see the heart of paul right here we see the passion for those who are lost that he's weeping for these people who have slowly infiltrated our thinking and so we must be aware of this that they are enemies of the cross they are people that somehow identify with the church and yet still are enemy of the cross whether it's a jesus plus system whatever that model is that they feel like they can obtain on their own they are enemies so we must be aware but we also must weep for them and pray 
that God will change their hearts. And he goes in verse 19, he says, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. When it says whose God is their appetite, this literally means that they worship their flesh. They worship their fleshly accomplishments. We know people like that. We've seen people like that. And we must be aware of that. Because what they're doing is, is that they're trying to achieve salvation on their own by what they've done, by how good they've been, by what they've accomplished. And so their God is their appetite. And then in verse 19, it says, their glory is in their shame. This means that they boast about the very works that they do. They are boasting about how good they serve Christ. Not in a manner that's glorifying Him, but in a manner that is glorifying self. Because their best works are nothing but filthy rags. And then finally it says to set their mind on earthly things. This is referring back to the Judaizers and, and the idea of these ceremonies and festivals and these feasts and sacrifices and new moons and all the physical things that they, they could achieve on their own. And that we do the same and that people today do the same. And so be aware. Flee from these enemies. Flee. Remove yourself from these people. Pray for them, love them, but remove yourself from their thinking. For they are dangerous. How do we do that? In verse 20, it says, focus on the prize. I love this scripture. We could sit here all day. Verse 20, it says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Wow. For which we also eagerly await for the Lord, the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform this body of our humblest state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Here we come to the underlining motivation. What is it that makes us pursue this prize? It is the expectation, it is the hope of the coming of Christ who will change us to be like him we must keep this focus clear for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for the savior why are we waiting for christ why do we want him to come verse 21 because he will transform this body of our humblest state into conformity with the body of his glory this is why, church, that we will be like Christ, that we are being transformed, that we are groaning for redemption, and that we want to be like Christ, perfect. So we long for our citizenship to be in heaven, not because it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, right? We know that song, huh? That's not why, though. It's because we long for the prize, which is Christ. We long to be like Christ. So when we focus on our goal, which is Christ, to be like Christ, then the world will see in our waiting, 
in our anticipation that Christ is our prize. This is what the church sees when our goal here on life is to be transformed, to look like Christ, to be obedient to the Father and His will. Then the world will see that we are, that we are running a race in anticipating to, to inherit a prize. And that prize is to be like Christ and to be with Christ. And so I hope that that drives you, church. I hope that longing to see Christ drives you, drives you with a passion that pushes you for the hearts of those who do not believe. I hope it gives you a craving to give to them this prize, to show them what it looks like to live for Christ. Not that we're perfect, not that we're more righteous than they are. but that Christ has come and clothed us with his righteousness. And because of that, we offer to them, we offer to the world a hope which they've never seen, a peace which they've never felt, a love that surpasses anything we have here on earth, and a joy that is inexpressible. Do you long for that, church? Do you weep like Jesus wept coming up the hill to Jerusalem? Do you weep as Paul wept here and for the sins of the world? Do we care for those who are lost? Or are we on our own little world, in our own little bubble? I pray that we're not, church. I pray that we cry and that we weep for the sins of the world in a way that will drive us to offer Christ in the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we love, and the way that we serve. So I pray, church, that in our waiting, as we pursue Christ, we put him on display so that the world will see the life founded in him and not in self. Let me pray. Father, we love you. God, we are so thankful that you sent your son to be the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But not only that, Father, we are so thankful that he lived a life, a perfect life, a perfect example in you. And because he has abided in you, that we have the opportunity to do the same. That we have full access to abide in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father. We thank you that you perfected love by sending the Spirit to live in us so that we can move towards perfection. That we can move towards the life that Christ lived on, here on earth so that the world will see in us and that they will long to have what we have. They will long for true hope, true peace, love and joy. And that they will long ultimately for you. That they will, that they will search and that they will run towards you and that when you call them that they will respond in faith.
so that they will make you their goal and ultimately you their prize in heaven. We thank you for our citizenship. We thank you that you call us sons and daughters. And that this Sunday morning, we continue to worship you as we reflect back upon your birth, the birth of a Savior, and as we look forward anticipating the second coming of Christ our King.